Well, last week uh, we began a new sermon series through the book of Jonah, taking a break in the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible, turn there with me, book of Jonah. And if you weren't here last week, let me summarize what happened in chapter 1. But just for fun, I'm going to tell the Dr. Seuss version that a pastor, John Ortberg, wrote. So, so God tells the prophet Jonah to, to go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, I can't believe I'm doing this, I would not go there in a boat, I would not go there in a float, I would not go there in a gale, I would not go there in a, come on, I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. So when I saw that John Ortberg wrote that, my initial thought was, that's totally blasphemous. But then I read it, and uh, I found it actually to be a pretty accurate summary. The book of Jonah is the story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Ortberg nails it, actually, when he says, uh, when he has Jonah say, I'd rather choke, I'd rather drown than go to Nineveh. Because the peak of the action, if you remember, in Jonah chapter 1, is when Jonah convinces the sailors to throw him overboard. And this isn't like a heroic act of sacrifice. It's actually a malicious act of rebellion. Jonah would rather die than obey God and go to Nineveh. Uh, Not because he's scared of the Ninevites, he should be, but because he doesn't want God to have mercy on them. And this is a problem. And so Jonah does, in fact, get thrown overboard, just like he wanted, But we read, of course, uh, at the end of chapter 1, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from here, the story of Jonah dips down into a disorienting kind of darkness. In the belly of the fish, Jonah experiences what Uh, the 16th century mystic, St. John of the Cross, has called the dark night of the soul. Anyone can experience this kind of suffering, not just prophets and saints, anyone. And no doubt, some of you are experiencing it right now, this very morning. Now, not all suffering is created equal. Uh, There is a profound suffering that transcends the others. Like the the death of a loved one is obviously far greater than a hangnail. But at the same time, all suffering is suffering. I'm reading a book right now um, by Edith Ager called The Choice. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it to you. Ager survived Auschwitz and, and is now a psychologist in California, but one of the things she says is that there is no hierarchy of suffering. There's nothing that makes my pain worse or better than yours. Uh, 
And she gives an example of this from her own practice. She says, one morning I saw two patients back to back, both mothers in their 40s. The first woman had a daughter who was dying of sickness, and she cried the entire time during the this, during this session. Um, my next patient, she said, had just come from the country club. She, too, spent much of the hour crying. She was upset because her new Cadillac uh, that had just, had just been delivered, and it was the wrong shade of yellow. <laughs> and uh, Ager says, on the surface, her problem seemed petty. But I knew enough about her to understand that her tears of disappointment over the color of her car were really tears of disappointment over the biggest things in her life that hadn't worked out the way she had hoped. A lonely marriage, a son who had been kicked out of yet another school, um, the aspirations for a career she had abandoned in order to be more available for her husband and her child. And Ager says, I realized that day uh, how my two patients who appeared so different, how much they had in common uh, with each other and with all people everywhere. Um, both women were responding to a situation they couldn't control in which their expectations had been upended. Both were struggling and hurting because something uh, was not what they wanted or expected it to be. They were trying to reconcile what was with what ought to have been. And she says, each woman's pain was real. And that's what I want to say to you at the out outset. Whatever you're going through, don't strip your suffering of its dignity. Uh, you might not be going through, technically, the dark night of the soul, per se. But you are suffering. So what does God want to say to you about this? This morning we're going to delve into this concept, this dark night of suffering, through the lens of Jonah's experience in Jonah chapter 2. And we're going to ask four questions. We're going to ask, what is the dark night of the soul? How do we get there? Why are we put there? And how do we get through it? So what is the dark night of the soul? How do we get there? Why are we put there? And how do we get through it? First, what is it? Last week, we noticed in Jonah chapter 1 how Jonah kept going down, down, down. Down to Joppa. You know, God said, arise, go, get up. And Jonah went down to Joppa, down into the ship, and laid down into a deep sleep. And that trend continues in chapter 2 as he narrates back to God all that has happened to him. So chapter 2, look with me starting at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now to verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Verse 6. At the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is at the lowest point of his life. Suspend any kind of disbelief just for a moment. The poetry here 
asks us to imagine Jonah beneath the bottom of the mountains, as far beneath the surface of the earth as the heavens are above it, as far from the land of this mortal life as it is possible to get, and even farther from the life of heaven and the throne of God. It's a place Jonah and other Jews of this time period called Sheol. It's mentioned in verse 2, Sheol. Sheol was the Old Testament place of the dead, the, the deep place where all flesh goes never to return. So we shouldn't think about it like life after death. We shouldn't even think about it as um, a life of, of punishment after death. Sheol is a place of death, a place of no more, no longer, no hope. Of course, Jonah wasn't really dead. He wasn't really in Sheol, but he certainly felt like it. And that's the whole point. Jonah's life has become a living hell. This was his darkest point, the point of seemingly no return, when all hope is lost. Some of you have felt like this before. When your particular suffering reaches a breaking point, so that you become utterly disoriented as to how to get out of it. You feel trapped by your circumstances, utterly stuck. But the worst part in these particular sufferings is that you can end up feeling abandoned by God. You don't feel like he's watching out for you anymore, like he's got your back. Maybe you even feel like he's out to get you. Um, like your sins from your youth or whatever are, are finally finding you out. And he's, he's kind of there with his arms crossed, um, slightly happy that you are finally learning the hard way. Like you deserve this pain or something. This is the dark night of the soul. It's, it's not just depression, although it certainly can include that. It's a dark mood that is truly life-shaking and touches the deepest parts of you to your very soul. It's this really difficult time in your life when God's blinding light is so intense on you that it feels to you like you're in utter darkness. Almost like, a, like an ice cube that touches your skin and it feels like it's burning. So many Christians and saints have experienced this sort of thing. It's, it's really not exceptional. It, it might even be considered normal. So many Christians and people in the Bible have hit rock bottom and felt like God was absent. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt and the time it took for him to come out of that. Think of David running from Saul. Think of Job Losing everything and utterly perplexed as to why. And uh, think even of a modern day example like Mother Teresa. Who experienced this dark night of the soul for some 50 years. Not many people know this. But from 1946 until her death in 1997. She experienced this. Listen to what she 
told her, her, um, her priest and confidant in 1957, so about 10 or 11 years into this season. In the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love, and now become as the most hated one. The one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there was no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convincing emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Mother Teresa, um, for 50 years, doing all of the things that we know that she did, she did with this as her background. And then, of course, there's Jonah, buried in the heart of the sea, praying from the belly of a fish, locked up in the prison of death. He'd try to run away from God. He had tried to get as far away from him as he possibly could. And now, well, that seemed to be happening. God was giving him the desire of his heart. This is Jonah's dark night. This is his personal hell, alone and far away from any help that any mortal can give him. To be with Jonah at this point in the story is to be in the belly of Sheol, as good as dead. It's to be where only Jesus Christ can visit and save you. No one else. You're at the end of your rope. You're utterly desperate. So that's, that's this dark night. That's the common experience that, that Jonah experiences here and that you and I very well might experience at some point in our lives. But now another question we need to ask is how do we get there? Like how do we end up getting into that? How does this dark night, this season of intense and profound suffering actually happen to us? There are several answers to this. Sometimes it's triggered by some external event, some disaster on on an external level. The death of someone close to you could trigger it, especially premature death. For example, if, if your child dies, or if you had built up your life and given it meaning through your achievements or relationships or, or, or dreams of what, it, of what life could be like, and then that meaning for some reason collapses, you lose your job, you lose your spouse, you lose inability. All of these can trigger the dark night. It's, it's an evil, a foreign experience that crashes into your life. But here's what we need to know. Behind the evil and all the meaninglessness of it, behind all the bad things that happen, is God with his mysterious purposes. Remember Job, how God allowed all those things that happened to him, and how Job spent like 40 chapters in that really long book of the Bible trying to figure out why. Remember Joseph, when he tells his brothers at the very end of Genesis that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
That's what happens with Jonah. Look again at those verses we just read, starting at verse 2. Notice, for you cast me into the deep. This is a prayer. He's talking to God. You cast me into the deep. Verse 3, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then verse 5, Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight. Notice he doesn't say, I ran away. That's what, it, that's what he did. He, he says, I am driven away. By whom? By God. This is a wake-up call for Jonah, isn't it? Only moments earlier in chapter 1, Jonah saw no divine significance to anything that was going on. He slept right on through that storm. But now, from the lowest vantage point possible, he sees everything 2020, doesn't he? He knows God is the one who woke up that storm in the first place. He knows that God is the one who built up the waves that beat him down. He knows that God is the one who drove him away. And so this dark night for Jonah and for us, it's this profound experience of suffering in which God seems to be absent, but in fact is deeply at work. Haven't you noticed that in your own suffering, God has your complete enraptured attention? This is the moment when you're most attentive, most eager to listen to him, to see what he's doing. Which leads to our next question, what is God doing? Why are we put into this dark night? If God is involved, what are his purposes? This is a dangerous question to ask. Because with deep suffering, it's impossible for any of us to discern clearly what God is up to. There's so much suffering, so much mystery. And yet, even in this dark night, Jonah gets enough clarity to see God's grace. Do you see that at the end of verse 6? Yet, you brought up or redeemed my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And again in verse 8, he sees that God is full of steadfast love. And finally in verse 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. So redemption, steadfast love, mercy, salvation, that's what's happening here. Just not at all in the way anybody expected. Um, Zoe Myers and I were talking the other night at small group about the worst church signs we'd ever seen. And uh, she had some pretty bad ones. Um, but the one I will always remember, one I personally saw several years ago, it's one that said, it was in the midst of those Geico commercials, um, so easy a caveman can do it. It was salvation, so easy a caveman can do it. I mean, salvation is hard. Like, it's, it's weird that we read that passage from Ephesians 2 where it's by grace that you have been saved, right? Not of your own doing. And then right after that, I wonder if you felt that in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, take up your cross. 
Uh, salvation is not a walk in the park. Jesus said salvation looks like taking up your cross and following him. But we rationalize and say he wasn't totally serious. Or, or he was talking about a, particular, uh, a particularly spiritual pain that affects our souls and not our actual lives here on earth. But one thing we need to know about God is that he is all about restoring our full humanity. Under all the gunk and sin in our lives, there is a precious metal that makes Drew, Drew, that makes Carol, Carol, that makes Matt, Matt. God longs to see that precious metal shine through. What a wonderful song we sang at the beginning. How firm a foundation I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And so God shapes us and forms us. And sometimes he allows us to be put through the fire. Now, most of us, the way we're wired, can't simply be told that we're broken and sinful. As if we could just read it out of the Bible and live into it automatically. No, we have to be shown and sometimes, often maybe, in brutal experience through suffering. What needed work in Jonah's life? Well, as we saw from chapter 1, he wasn't merciful. This was Jonah's fatal flaw. And who knows, maybe this unmerciful attitude showed up every now and then in the way he raised his children or in the way he responded to his spouse, or in the way he did business with his co-workers. Time after time, bit by bit, it was sucking the life out of him, but in a way he couldn't realize. And so what does God do? He goes for the bullseye, doesn't he? He tells Jonah to preach mercy to the Ninevites, his greatest enemies. To be mean? No. To make him into a merciful person who is fit to live in God's new creation. Now, not all suffering is because of sin. We shouldn't overgeneralize. But I wonder if you can detect what might be shaping you what God might be shaping in you through your suffering right now. Is it patience? Learning to wait on Him? Is it faith? Learning to let go of control and let God have it? What is it for you? Often we don't know the answer. But every now and then, in the belly of the fish... God does give us insights, brief glimpses of insights into what he's trying to do. And it's always good. It's always better than it seems or feels. We just have to trust him. So we've seen um, what the dark night of the soul is. We've seen God's role, his surprising role maybe in getting us there. And we've seen at least partially God's purposes behind it. But now finally, how do we get through it? 
How do we enter into this darkness, this cloud of unknowing, without losing the very best parts of ourselves? How do we bear it? And the answer is perhaps unsatisfyingly simple. We wait and we worship. We wait and we worship. Suffering leaves us feeling helpless. Um, That's the worst part of it. Notice in verse 7, Jonah says it was God who brought him up from the pit. He couldn't do it himself. But of course, waiting and worshiping, those are the last things we feel like doing whenever we're suffering. Interestingly, um, many scholars look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 and say it's play-acting. He's playing a part. And it's pretty easy to see what they mean. I mean, look back at verse 2. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. Okay, this sounds like, I don't know, 90% of the other Psalms that we've read in the Bible. So Psalm 120, verse 1, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. Psalm 3, verse 4, I cried out aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Is Jonah plagiarizing here? Like, is, is he copying? Is he perhaps being um, not as authentic, not as passionate as he should be in his prayer life at this critical moment? And the answer is, you bet. Like, big whoop. Because you know what? This is what the Psalms are for. This is what Our worship service, the structure of our worship service, the liturgy, that's what it's for. This is what our brothers and sisters in Christ are for. When you're weak and crippled, like don't expect to be on your A-game. You need a crutch. No one expects you to run a marathon with a broken ankle. But you can walk with help. You can wait it out. And let the healing slowly take place. And you can, do, you can do it all while leaning on the resources that God has given you. God doesn't expect you to become a prayer poet in your suffering. He doesn't expect you to be mighty when you're weak. Nobody has broken any world athletic records while in the operating room of, a sur- of, of surgery. It's only after they're healed made new, come out of it, that they come to find the strength that they had had all along. That's when they can run faster and jump higher. But for the time of suffering itself, take a cue from Jonah. Don't listen to the scholars. Take a cue from Jonah. Keep waiting, keep worshiping, and draw on all the resources around you to bind your heart and your soul to the one alone who has the power to pull you through it. And that's perhaps the greatest comfort of all. Whatever you're going through, wherever you end up, it's not just you. It's you and God. It's you and God. You're not alone. The Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon once said, 
I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So remember the words of the psalmist, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. In the valley, in the shadows, in the belly of the fish, in the dark night of the soul, God is with you. Christ is with you. He is not aloof to your pain. When we look at the cross, we know that God has tasted every last drop of what we're going through and now lives to help us every step of the way. So trust in Christ. Trust in His cross. And trust in His power to get you through the darkest nights because He is with you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.